Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I am so glad you're here. After you listen to this episode, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform, take a moment to rate it, review it, or share it with friends. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider sponsoring this podcast with a small monthly donation by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at Love Letters and Mixtapes. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Snake River Roasting Company is an organic coffee roaster located in the beautiful mountains of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Not only do they roast award-winning coffees, but their mission and commitment to supporting the rights of women farmers around the world are just incredible. I start every single morning with a cup of their Fire on the Mountain organic coffee blend. And if you're ready to fall in love with your coffee, Snake River Roasting Company has a free shipping code for you to give their delicious coffee a taste. Head to their website, snakeriverroastingco.com, and use the code COFFEELOVE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic coffee orders. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to part three of my series on adult children of alcoholics, addicts, and dysfunctional families. You might remember that a few months ago, I wrote and recorded part one and two of this series. And if you haven't listened to them yet, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. But at the time, I mentioned that I felt that I had to take a pause before I wrote and recorded this part three. And I felt that way because this is a very layered and loaded topic that I have a lot of personal experience with. I am definitely uniquely qualified to talk about it. And I wanted to take the time to process how I felt about all the feelings that kind of rose to the surface and everything I had shared thus far, as well as what else I wanted to say, like what had I left out? And even taking that pause of a few weeks before recording it is probably a big check mark in the column of adult children of alcoholics mental health, because in the past, I probably wouldn't have done that. I probably would have just muscled through and focused on the perfectionism of saying, you know, I did part one and two, and I have to do part three right now. And so after all of these years of doing this work, <laughs> a little positive is that I took a break and said, how do I actually feel about this before I proceed? I was concerned about the message and what I was sharing and how it was landing because I am aware that some of the people who fit into the categories I'm talking about, whether that's the adult child of an alcoholic or addict or an alcoholic or addict who's listening, you know, either of those people are both especially resistant to anyone talking about this topic or discussing solution. And at the same time, we also exist in this fiercely individualist world that will take every opportunity that it can to scream in your face how nothing that has ever happened to you has any impact on you and that you should just muscle through life with 
sheer self-will and that if you do that, it means you're a success. But if you've been impacted in any way by the trauma and deprivation of growing up in an alcoholic home, then you're the anomaly and there's something wrong with you because everyone else could handle it, just not you. So we have all of these messages floating around, all of our personal feelings, and I just wanted to take a pause and consider how everything was landing and if there was anything else that I could share. And then I sat down and I wrote this episode. And if any of the feelings that I just mentioned is how you currently feel, but you've ended up listening to my episode for some reason, (laughs) then I encourage you to just stay, keep an open mind, and remember that you can pick up all of your beliefs as soon as this podcast is over. All I'm sharing here is my experience, strength, and hope, and it doesn't have to be yours. And it also didn't feel like this for me day one of doing this work or on my anniversary of year one or year two. This is an evolution and it happens over time. And that's the safest and best thing that can happen to you is that your muscles begin to grow and you develop tolerance and all of this feels in perfect alignment with the direction you're moving in. In the previous two episodes that I created on this topic, I shared a few lists and questions that I felt would help to clarify and connect our experiences, especially for those of us who think that we may have grown up in a home where someone's drinking or dysfunctional behaviors may have affected us, but we've never really had any conversation around it. So it can be really helpful to read through some of these lists and self-identify. Dr. Jan was a best-selling author, lecturer, and counselor who was also married to an alcoholic. And based on her personal experience living with alcoholism and witnessing its effect on her children, as well as her work with clients who were raised in dysfunctional families, Dr. Jan discovered that there are common characteristics that are prevalent not only in alcoholic families, but also in those people who grew up in families where there were other compulsive behaviors. And in 1983, she wrote a book simply titled Adult Children of Alcoholics, where she outlined some feelings or behaviors of this group. And she said that adult children of alcoholics often have to guess at what normal behavior is. They have difficulty following a project through from beginning to end. They lie when it would be just as easy to tell the truth. They judge themselves without mercy. They have difficulty having fun. They take themselves very seriously. They have difficulty with intimate relationships. They often overreact to changes over which they have no control. They're constantly seeking approval and affirmation. They feel that they're different from other people. They are either super responsible or super irresponsible. They are extremely loyal even in the face of evidence that the loyalty is undeserved. They are impulsive 
they tend to lock themselves in a course of action without giving serious consideration to alternative behaviors or possible consequences. And a person's impulsivity can lead to confusion, self-loathing, and loss of control over their environment. In addition, they can spend an excessive amount of energy cleaning up their messes. And one thing that I want to note about this list that she put together is that the word alcohol is never mentioned. Now, why is that important? Because addiction of any kind is not just about the substance or the compulsive behavior. And the world would have us believe that, right? That's how it's explained to us, even in childhood, in, even in adulthood, a lot of us have that fixed belief. It's actually about the addict or alcoholic's thoughts, feelings, and escalating problem behaviors that don't necessarily have to do with a substance, but can be correlated with it afterwards. And many addicts and alcoholics will tell you that they notice their thoughts and feelings and behaviors firing up long before a relapse ever occurs. And these things can be just as destructive, but they're often overlooked as, oh, that's normal, but your drinking is abnormal. Oh, that thing is kind of socially acceptable, but your sex addiction is the real problem. <laughs> And I absolutely understand that that might seem how it is, but that's why I always encourage people to actually learn about addiction, not just rest on what we think we know about addiction based on our limited experience. And similarly, when we take a look at the 12 steps themselves in any 12-step program, you'll notice that the word alcohol is only mentioned once in the very first step. And what that tells me is that these diseases are not just exclusively liquor in a bottle or what we put up our noses or shoot into our veins. Addiction has a lot to do with our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. And again, the entire world wants to tell us, no, it's just that one thing. If you take that one thing away, or if you could just control yourself more, all would be well. But if you've grown up in a household where someone struggled in these areas, you know that when you remove alcohol from an alcoholic, all you have done is taken away their anesthetic. They have no coping methods. They don't have the social skills, and they don't have the community support to navigate life on life's terms. And I also know that a lot of people don't agree with anything that I just said. I get that. You know, it makes sense. If you're allergic to something or something's causing a problem, just remove that thing and you'll be fine. And again, the whole world tells us that. Because it's a lot easier to just point a finger and blame this one thing than it is to allow someone to do the inner work or heal or develop new tools over time. Because it's not a quick fix. And I have a lot of people in my own life who come to me with questions about addiction or 
they're experiencing their own struggles and they're on the verge of either going to rehab or getting a divorce or anything that might change their life drastically. And when I talk about addiction in this holistic way, the wall comes down. You know, it's like, no, I'm just going to go to rehab and then I'll be fine. And listen, if that works for you and that's what you want, I absolutely honor that. What I am encouraging you to do, though, is look at your life with a 360 perspective. What are my relationships? How am I spending money? How am I treating sex? How is my health? All of these things. And how are they connected to my addiction? And if my addiction has been raging, (laughs) raging for five years or a decade or multiple decades, do I really believe that 28 days in a rehab will fix everything? Or is it possible that I may have to build on that foundation once I leave rehab with other supportive methodologies, whether that's therapy, whether that's a support group, whether that's community, might I have to do something else? And I bring that up as a question, not a certainty, because I'm not in your shoes and we don't all want the same things. So I've worked with a lot of people, whether they're the adult children of alcoholics or the alcoholics or addicts themselves. And again, not everyone wants spiritual recovery. Not everyone wants community. And some people just want the sobriety. They just want that one behavior to stop. And that's their journey. So I'm saying that also for any of the adult children of alcoholics who are listening to this episode. And wondering, you know, okay, so my parents stopped drinking or using, but they're not doing anything else. And I bring it up because, yes, all of this work can sound really positive and helpful, and that it could provide both of you with a new life or a new relationship. But someone has to want that for themselves. And then it's our job to be an acceptance of the reality of the experience because we can't force someone to want a spiritual experience that they don't want. So I'm just trying to present all different sides of this. I have friends in my own life, like I said, who've gone into rehab. They've stopped the one particular addictive behavior and life has continued with all of the character defects, all of the difficulties that were present before, but they've removed that one behavior. And that's what they want. And so while it can be very difficult for someone who loves and cares about them, again, I get to let them have their experience and focus on my own journey, which can be really difficult if you've been the one supporting someone through that process. But that's what we're here to talk about. And a great way to look at that with new eyes is to think about how often I've worked with families where they'll talk about the person in the family who has the problem with the addiction and all the things that that person needs to do. You know, the family usually walks in with a laundry list of like they need to do A, B, and C and da 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 da. And then if I ask the family, 
okay, so that's their journey. But what about you? Have you ever gone to Al-Anon? Are you in therapy? Are you in a support group? Have you read any books about the family disease of alcoholism? Are you going to the adult children of alcoholics groups? And immediately they'll say, no, I don't need that. I'm not the one with the problem. (laughs) The other person needs help. And so I bring this up not to make fun of anyone because I was that person a million years ago too. I bring it up because it's part of the journey. Resistance is part of our journey. And I don't think it benefits anyone to rush through that experience because that will always come up and be of service to us and other people at a later date in our lives. And so if you are the adult child of an alcoholic and you're listening to this episode and you don't understand why this person in your life can't just get help, think about your own resistance to getting help and how ridiculous it can sound that I'm sitting here talking about you doing the same amount of work as your family member who is in active addiction. And just how contrary that sounds to all of your beliefs, like that person needs help, not me. If they would just stop doing what they're doing, I would be fine. And here I'm telling you, you have your own work to do. And it just doesn't make any sense. And that's how it sounds when we're talking to the person in our life who's struggling with addiction. They're hearing us talk about it, and it doesn't make any sense. They think, I don't need to do that. I just need to manage this better. You all need to act differently. So I'm just making a gentle correlation that we're having the same, same, but different experience that the other person is having. We think that if we could just control things outside of ourselves, if everyone else could be different, we would be fine. And that's something to think about as we're looking at our loved one struggle with this and we're thinking about our own struggle with it. A few months ago, I opened my notes app in my phone and I typed, I was unwilling to give up my struggle without a struggle. And that perfectly sums up my own coming to process as an adult child of an alcoholic. And maybe some of you can relate. This disease, this family disease, can bring us to our knees even in adulthood. Even when we're successful professionally or in a loving relationship or haven't spoken to the alcoholic in our lives for decades. Without the awareness and conscious action to undo some of the things that we normalized in our thinking and our behaviors, we can struggle just as much as we did when we were kids growing up in an alcoholic home. So let's look at that one line. I was unwilling to give up my struggle without a struggle. Can you relate to that at all? And if so, what does that look like in your own life? Are we closed off from solutions that we did not come up with ourselves? Do we have a hard time believing that anyone else could relate to our experience or know better how to navigate it? 
Do we find it challenging to open up, let our guard down, trust other people, or trust solutions? Do we struggle to have hope? Can we even recognize the feeling when it comes up, or are we immediately afraid of it? What forces us to tell the truth about what it was like growing up in an alcoholic home or home with addiction or dysfunctional behaviors? What forces us? What situations, circumstances, or relationships will bring us to the truth of our own experience? And what do we do to protect ourselves from disappointment? And I think that last one is a really important question to ask ourselves in any stage of our lives because it reveals so much. You know, even now, looking in the mirror and asking yourself, what am I doing to protect myself from disappointment? And in what ways is that harming me or holding me back? You know, that question and the truth in your answer will reveal so much about what's going on, what you want, what you need, and maybe what you need to do to get there. What excuses do we make? Or what stories do we tell ourselves? Or how does the tape sound that plays in our heads that would cut us off from resources and support because we think it makes us seem weak or needy or pathetic? And where did we first learn that story? The one that tells us we're supposed to carry these burdens all by ourselves or that This is just life and these aren't burdens. Who told us that we had to be fiercely individualistic, not in community, not in connection with other people who had similar experiences? And who in our lives have we seen that work out well for? Has it worked for us? Or has it kept us hidden and secretive and small? And I mentioned earlier that a lot of people in my own life reach out to me to talk about these things, whether that's because they trust me as a friend or they know my professional background or they saw me post something about my own experience on social media. And it's actually always a challenge to engage with them about these topics because the same thing happens every single time. And it's almost like these people want to reach out and connect with someone and tell the truth and find a solution. But instead of doing that, they end up just listing all the reasons why they don't need or want help and why everyone else who needs it, including me, (laughs) is pathetic. I have heard every story and every excuse that you could possibly even imagine. And it's so interesting to hear it and to hear how familiar it is and to hear how everyone who's had these similar experiences has the same train of thought. And as a friend, it's incredibly challenging because it absolutely damages 
the relationship and not even on my end. (laughs) Even when people are telling me, yeah, 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 we had the same experience, but you're pathetic and you need help, but I don't need that. You know, that doesn't even really bother me. But I do know that the person coming to me to talk about it will eventually feel deeply irritated or ashamed or seen in a way that they were not prepared for. And they'll say things like, you know, I understand what you're talking about. You're talking about adult children of alcoholics. You're talking about AA or NA, you know, but my son, he uses meth. He's not an alcoholic. So I don't think he needs the same type of help. Or someone will say, you know, I hear what you're saying about the adult children of alcoholics, and that's really good for you that you need help and you got it, you know, but my father gambled our house away and cheated on my mom all the time, but I never saw him take a drink, so I don't think I need help. Or they'll say something like, my father drank alcoholically for 25 years, and one day he just stopped cold turkey, so I don't need help. And to all of that, you know, I try to show up with a lot of grace because I don't think it ever helps to force someone to see something they're not ready to see. You know, it's really difficult to see things about ourselves that we don't want to see when we've spent so much time in our lives being hyper vigilant about someone else's behavior in order to protect ourselves. So just think about that. Think about what it's like growing up in an alcoholic home or addiction or with dysfunctional behaviors. You're hypervigilant about self-preservation. You're worried about your physical safety, your emotional safety. You're sometimes worried if you're going to even eat that night. And you're constantly focusing on someone else's behavior. And so to have someone tell you to abruptly shift your focus can be really scary because it brings so many things into our awareness that we'd rather not acknowledge. And I just want to honor that and bring that up because it can be frustrating on both ends. You know, I'm sure it's frustrating for people who come to me that I don't offer them the solution that they want. They don't even know what it is, but they know they want something. And here I am being annoying and saying, put the focus on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that person's destroying your life, but let's just gently take the focus off them and let's focus on what you can do to take care of yourself through it. And I know that doesn't make any sense when you're in the thick of it, when it's actually happening and you're thinking, yeah, I just need them to stop drinking. And here I'm saying, I don't think we can do that, but I think that I can walk you to solution that includes community and shared experience, and connection, and being of service to other people with your own story. And I understand that that almost sounds like it can't compare to the pain you're experiencing watching someone else go through something. But I am here to tell you it's not about comparison. It's about connection. And in these types of situations where someone is reaching out for help but is very hesitant to receive it and feeling a little distrustful. A big issue that I've noticed is that someone may know a lot about their own 
personal experience growing up in alcoholism and dysfunction. But they don't realize that they don't know anything about the disease, the solutions, or recovery. Because those are all not the same things. And I've talked with a lot of friends who, even more than me, qualify as adult children of alcoholics. And they'll say, yeah, 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 I don't need that. I don't need that at all. I know all I need to know about this disease. And what they're telling me is that they have a lot of pain and they have a lot of distrust, but they have yet to be introduced to, like I said, the solutions and the recovery or a deeper understanding of the disease without the emotion attached to it. And we all deserve that. We all deserve the time and space to have those experiences and the exposure to those things. And maybe that's what this episode is for you. Maybe it's just a gentle introduction and an exposure to a different way of looking at things. And I don't have to grab you by the neck and force you to look in a mirror and say, you know, this is who you are. (laughs) That's not what this is. It's, again, just me sharing my experience, strength, and hope. And maybe some of that resonates for you. Or maybe it's bringing up feelings of discomfort but you're not ready to run away yet and you're willing to kind of sit with those feelings for a few more minutes. And that's what I want. That's why I'm talking about this because in my own life, people did that with me and they would talk about these things and I would have huge feelings come up, really uncomfortable feelings that I didn't want to face. And instead of, you know, hammering me over the head with, this is the only way, you know, they didn't do that. They kind of just kept taking the focus and putting it on them and saying, well, this is how I experienced it. This is how I felt. This is what works for me. And eventually, after hearing that long enough, I started to trust it and started to think that some of those things might work for me as well. You know, and for me, it was a real challenge because I had profound feelings of failure that I couldn't just figure it out on my own. I couldn't fix it, I couldn't hide it, and I couldn't muscle my way through and just be like everyone else. And I did. I felt like a huge failure. And I thought everyone else could see that. And that's why it was so important for me to find community that I could talk about these things with, because I realized other people felt the same way too. And other people didn't handle trauma perfectly, and that I didn't need to either. And one of the most helpful readings in any 12-step program, but especially adult children of alcoholics and Al-Anon, is a simple one called the three C's. And that is, I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. And I remember how powerful hearing that was in even my first meeting how it just resonated and sunk in. And at the same time, I thought, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) But part of me resonated with it. And, you know, it was that little voice inside that said, you know what, I didn't cause any of this. And I have absolutely no control over it or the impact it had on me. And I can't cure it for someone else. But maybe I can just work on myself. And maybe that's the solution. 
And that's what I want to talk about now. I want to talk about solutions and what that looks like in our lives. Whether that's going to therapy, a support group, or finding a 12-step group that resonates for you. And I've shared that I always resonated with the adult children of alcoholics groups. And I was thinking as I was writing this episode about my very first meetings. And I reached out to some other people that I know who attend and do this work. And I asked them about those initial meetings. And if you knew everything that you knew now, back then, what would you have told yourself? before going to that first meeting. And a few people, they all kind of had the same thing that they said. (laughs) And it was, you need help. You need help too. You also deserve help. It's not just the other person in your life. It's you and you deserve it. And that one of the biggest lies of our entire lives is that asking for help makes us weak when it's actually the exact opposite. To sit in the presence of other people and talk about some of the most shameful things that have ever happened to us and to be able to sit and listen when someone else shares the same kind of thing, that's deep strength. And that's a level of love and tolerance that most of us weren't raised with in our homes. And so as adults, gravitating towards that and building that in our lives and creating these communities and doing this work is really powerful. But as we're walking into that first meeting or making that first phone call to a therapist, we're not seeing or hearing that. You know, we're very much in our own stories and our own fear and shame. Because if we've grown up in this way, we're distrustful. We're distrustful because something can only feel real if we've earned it, if we lose a part of ourselves, if we hurt enough, if we struggle enough. That validates something. And so this work is a complete contradiction to us because it is simple and straightforward, but it is not easy. And the things we're talking about are really difficult and looking at ourselves and our own thoughts and our own behaviors is really difficult, but it's also gentle. And we're not doing this to shame ourselves or harm ourselves. We're doing this to reveal ourselves and who we are at our core because it's been pretty hidden in all these masks that we have to wear to navigate the world with all of this inside of us. As adult children of alcoholics, we bring self-doubt and fear into every single interaction. And we can dress those things up as other things. You know, fear can walk in as anger. Self-doubt can walk in as being self-deprecating. Some people can find it charming. Some people can find us easy to be around because we have these things that keep us small. But I don't want to walk in with my armor of self-doubt and fear into every situation, every relationship, every work setting, every friendship. 
I feel that there are other things that we can walk in with that will magnify and build and grow those relationships in really healthy ways. And we just don't know what they are yet. But we can believe that they're out there. And that belief can be a huge struggle when we feel that we don't deserve to feel better. When we feel that we don't deserve relief. We don't deserve to share our own stories apart from the person in our life who is suffering because we don't believe that we are actually suffering. And I bring that up because every single one of us has our own story. You know, on social media now, there's this huge thing about main character energy. And I think about that and I kind of laugh because my whole life I've always felt like I was someone else's background character, like I wasn't even a supporting character. I was kind of just an extra in the movie of someone else's life. And I feel that a lot of the adult children of alcoholics can relate to that. You know, the person in our life who is suffering in their own way through any type of dysfunction or addiction, it's almost like they're the main character. And we're just these things in the background that makes their story function. And I don't want that horrible belief to chase me my entire life. We deserve our own healing, our own story, our own awareness, our own action. We deserve to mess up on our own and to fix it on our own. And if you're listening to this today, I just want to remind you that you are not the extra in anyone else's story. You have your own story. And maybe you've been feeling very disconnected to it. And this is your invitation to begin living it. And living these stories, our own main character story, can be really difficult as we're also processing all of these things we've experienced. We actually grieve the pain. We grieve our disappointment, our isolation, our loneliness, and we grieve all of these things, even though it doesn't make sense to anyone else, we grieve them because for so many of us, those were the constants in our chaotic lives as adult children of alcoholics. My loneliness, my depression, My constant feeling that the whole world was going to disappoint me was almost soothing at times. That feeling of being lonely in a room full of people kept me feeling safe in some ways. And so as I'm talking about this, and you know, if you go into a meeting today, (laughs) whether that's in Zoom or in person, and you are in community, That feeling of surrendering those things that felt like our best friends our whole lives. To surrender them for community and connection and understanding and safety and growth. It almost sounds like it would be easy, but it actually isn't. And so there's a lot of grief in healing. And I want to talk about it because I know that no one does. Everyone thinks, oh, you take a quote-unquote pill or you do this one action and you'll immediately feel better. But no one ever talks about the grief and the letting go and how hard that is because we know that grief. We know that pain. I know disappointment and isolation and feeling like I'm the only one 
I'm very familiar with it. I have that map in my heart. But what I don't know is how it feels to say something that I would never say out loud and look up, catch someone's eye, and see them nodding because they've been through it too. That can be completely overwhelming to be seen in that way. And so it's okay to be gentle with yourself and to take baby steps. And I always want to encourage that. And if you have any questions about doing this work, whether that's any literature that you can read or any groups you can attend on Zoom or in person, you can always reach out to me on Instagram and send me a DM. And I also know how difficult it can be to do all of this or to even admit that we've experienced this. You know, in a lot of ways, it can feel that we are abandoning our partners or our parents or, you know, throwing them under the bus when we've almost been sworn to secrecy about all of these things. And I just want to remind you that we don't do this inner work so that we can expertly pathologize our families or partners. It's not that we want to diagnose them or force them into recovery or to feel victimized or like a martyr. We do this work to see ourselves better, more clearly, to hold ourselves accountable, and to be there for other people when they begin their own journey in doing this work because we need other people and because we're not alone and we're not unique. And as different as our story sounds to us, there is someone else out there who went through the exact same thing. And that's what happens when you grow up in an alcoholic home. You become invisible and you become invisible even when someone's targeting you. You feel invisible and unworthy as if you don't deserve to take up space. And as we age, and I won't even say mature, (laughs) but as we get older and function in the world in a more autonomous capacity, with all of our stories of unworthiness and invisibility still inside us, things can become distorted. So we do this work for ourselves to support our journey. It's not about anyone else. And that can be really difficult for the adult child of an alcoholic to say, I deserve this. I get to have that. I get to do my own work. Because that invisibility story will tell you that you don't deserve it. And you do. And you're not alone. The name of this podcast is Love Letters and Mixtapes. And the inspiration for that was a desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. And if I was going to write a love letter to my younger self about the struggle of being an adult child of an alcoholic, addict, or dysfunctional family, it would probably go something like this. Some of us are hardwired to equate worth, reality, and truth with difficulty, as if something can only be real to us or have meaning if it's hard won, or if we've had to experience pain, loss, stress, or be completely depleted before we could receive something we want. Not trusting the good things that come our way is an excellent method of ensuring that we're never present for them, that we never enjoy them, and we cannot call them by their proper name or recognize them when they move through our lives. Instead of miracles, they look like targets, 
and leave it to messy human beings to weaponize anything and take aim. The grandiose fear of tempting the gods with hubris can keep us in a constant state of contracted hypervigilance, which binds us and blinds us instead of making us safer or happier. The words relieve me of the bondage of self are part of my daily meditation practice because the truth is that the gods aren't out here fucking me up. It's literally just me arguing with myself about myself and making sure that the pain of every experience outweighs the joy and telling myself that that is precisely what makes it real. And we can't win when we're at war with ourselves. The definition of grace is unearned favor, and I love that. Goodness that I didn't have to earn or worry about or talk myself out of. It's just as valuable as the good things that I toil over. Grace just is, even when we have a hard time accepting it. And as Nadia Boltzweber says, this gift of grace originates in the goodness of the gift giver not in the worthiness or the fearlessness of the gift receiver. Life feels impossible lately, so it seems like an odd time to welcome in a season of ease, grace, and receptivity. But if not now, when? Relieve me of the bondage of self. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a small monthly donation to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at Love Letters and Mixtapes.